if you're eating the processed meat and the really high saturated fat, mixing dairy and meat together, and refined carbohydrates. We put all those things together that so many of the athletes are eating, and the long-term outcomes are not good. So I'm hoping that everyone will realize the power of plant-based nutrition and adopt it for their long-term health, not just short-term athletic performance. Hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Now, here is a question for you. What is the perfect formula for heart health? Is it more important to exercise and be in the gym all the time? Or is nutrition the king of the cardiovascular kingdom? Can you even compare the two? Maybe they're equally important and they work in tandem. So today on the show, we are going to find out. And the person who has the answers is someone who should know. Because he is both an expert in healthy diets and an avid exerciser himself. In fact, the only thing that makes him as happy as studying the heart is studying his opponents on the tennis court. Dr. Kim Williams will be back on the exam room with us today. Now, in addition to being one of the most renowned cardiologists on the planet, Dr. Williams is a former tennis pro. Now, seriously, How many people can say they used to be the president of the American College of Cardiology and got paid to play tennis? Well, I can count them on one hand. Matter of fact, I only need one finger. And you better believe that it is a lock that we are going to be talking about both aspects of his fascinating careers on the show today. Definitely no lack of material to cover with Dr. Williams. Plus, we're going to revisit a conversation with Dr. Steve Niebuhr regarding cholesterol. So we all know that high cholesterol is a significant risk factor for heart disease. But why is that? What is it about cholesterol that does this? And to take it a step further... What is cholesterol to begin with? So today we're going to be getting a little HDL and LDL 101 with Dr. Niebuhr. Plus, we're going to be talking about the unfortunate sign that men, if this is happening to you, your cholesterol might be a little bit high. Something that you're going to want to noodle over. Plus, we'll be chatting about ways to bring that cholesterol back under control and get you on a healthier path. But first, before we get to anything else, I wanted to share some potential good news for heart health and high cholesterol. A new survey finds more than half of Americans have been shying away from meat and dairy during the pandemic. 60% now considering themselves to be flexitarian or semi-vegetarian. The most popular reasons given for the change? People want to eat a healthier diet and have a more sustainable lifestyle. 
The poll, which was conducted on behalf of plant-based egg alternative Just Egg, finds more people are eating vegan for breakfast than any other meal. That's pretty interesting. It should also be noted, along that note, that September is also Better Breakfast Month. (laughs) Time now to start the show. Here's a wonderful conversation about heart health with the one and only Dr. Kim Williams. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. I'm so thrilled now in the midst of the U.S. Open. This is major tennis season. I'm so excited to have on my next guest. He is the chief of cardiology at Rush University and former president of the American College of Cardiology and a former tennis pro and and what I just learned before we started rolling, a, a coach as well coached in the majors with that we welcome dr kim williams to the exam room once again sir thank you so much for taking the time certainly my pleasure thanks for having me i'm especially humble because as we're recording this there is literally a quarterfinals match happening right now so the fact that you're taking time out of your day to do this means the world to me well that'd be great i will so if you see me looking to my left a lot that's because the matches are on right now <laughs> <laughs> i was wondering if somebody was off camera but it's the matches okay i got you i got you um all right so let's let's start with this man uh as we record this serena just made her way serena williams just made her way into the semifinals and she for a tennis pro she's up there in age she's been doing this for what 20 some odd years now um and it's just remarkable the way that she's been able to stay in such shape, take such good care of her heart. And I'm assuming there that there is a, a real, real, you know, discipline, both in terms of exercise and uh, in terms of her diet as well. As somebody who, you know, is very familiar with cardiology and the tennis world, I mean, talk about the level of discipline that she has to be able to do what it is that she's doing. Oh, she does. I mean, when you look at the longevity of her career, and I have to say, one of her first pro matches and successes was actually here in Chicago, back when Chicago had a women's tour event. Um, I happened to have take, taken my kids to uh, this uh, seemingly nondescript, you know, just opening day kind of thing. And it was Serena Williams playing Mary Pierce, who was a big deal at the time. And with all due respect to Mary, she's a wonderful champion. She got smoked that day by a 16-year-old unknown kid named Serena Williams. Everybody knew about her because Venus had been out there for a year, and Richard Williams kept saying, but wait till you see Serena. And it turns out, you know, she was, she was 16 then. Uh, she'll be 39 next month. And so she's been out there quite a while and uh, high level of productivity. And, you know, when you look at a career of an athlete like that, she really has more of the persistence than, than, than most of the fans, the casual fans, don't even know about. Uh, first of all, there was the Wimbledon where she cut her foot. And for all the medical people out there, you'll understand that if you cut your foot after you win Wimbledon and you're in London and then you fly back to, to New York, have it surgically repaired, uh, I think the story was, and then fly home in Los Angeles, that's a lot of air travel with a lot of immobility post-surgery. Sure enough, she got a DVT and uh, that deep vein thrombosis broke off, went to her lungs. So she had a life-threatening pulmonary embolism. And so that, uh, the fact that she came back from that, you know, uh, took her months of blood thinners. 
And, you know, obviously she does talk about having some respiratory uh, limitations in terms of, and you can hear her in post-match interview, uh, actually sort of panting a little bit through the mask, but it probably has to do with the fact that they're always interviewing her right after she played. Um, but this was became a very relevant story um, after she delivered. Uh, and it's a very famous story that I hope everyone pays attention to because we still have difficulties in this country with bias. And that's been a big deal since George Floyd. But she was one of the people who was very out in front talking about our medical system and how there are inherent biases that we all need to try to deal with uh, as physicians. And there, unfortunately, women in general, and black women in particular, tend to have their symptoms less valued than other segments of the population. And uh, <laughs> they actually did a TV show on it. The Grey's Anatomy did, dedicated a whole thing with Miranda Bailey going to a hospital with a heart attack and being blown off. Well, that actually did happen to Serena Williams. So after the 2011 Wimbledon thing, she, here she is having a baby and, you know, post-delivery. Uh, there were some complications, and she's <clears throat> prolonged in bed again. And she, apparently, the story goes that she let them know that she felt like she was having another DVT, and could she get an ultrasound of her leg? And they said, oh, no, you'll be fine. And ultimately, she did have another pulmonary embolism, another life-threatening uh, condition. Fortunately, it was recognized through her help, and um, she did get them the medication that she needed. She, re she recovered, but uh, she went public with it this time. Uh, and I think appropriate, uh, appropriately so, wherever there are biases, um, and, and, and we, we, we really need to try to root them out because patient care is going to be so much better. And in this case, the tennis world is going to be so much better. I, I just, I'm blown away right now thinking that someone who has that celebrity like a Serena Williams is right. experiencing this. This isn't <laughs> your ordinary citizen. This is Serena Williams and she's experiencing that. I think that that alone speaks volumes. No, I, I think you're right. And, you know, there is literature on this. Um, we've had some wonderful um, grand rounds in cardiology, believe it or not, because cardiology should be getting more into maternal fetal medicine. And it turns out that African-American women, but the United States in general, the United States in general has one of the worst maternal and fetal mortality rates of worse than most third, third world countries. And it's really uh, much more difficult in the African-American community. And you look at the data and you say, oh, that article who says that, you know, if a woman is African-American and she has a doctorate or a PhD or she's CEO of a company, that she somehow still has this thing hanging over her of maternal fetal mortality. That can't be true. That is the economics gets you out of that. But apparently it is. I mean, as far as I know, I don't know them. Uh, I met them personally, her and her husband. Um, he's the founder of Reddit. So as far as I know, she's kind of like a millionaire married to a billionaire and it happened to her anyway. So mm. we really have to root out these, um, these uh, horrific healthcare disparities, wherever they show up in our society. Just uh, from a physician standpoint, if you're a patient, like what kind of recommendations can you have somebody who is in that situation to make sure that that voice is heard? Is there anything that they can do? One of the, one of the best ways is to actually have a patient advocate, someone with you, someone who you know. <clears throat> I know that I've had much better outcomes in my own family because I was standing there. Um, or somebody was there for me. And um, that is helpful. I've seen it help 
um, whether it's a family member who's just sitting there you know, on Google <laughs> looking up stuff when people are taking, because when you're sick, you're probably the last person to understand everything. If it's not in your particular area of expertise, uh, everything that's going on. And so why not have a, a patient advocate with you? And I think most people will recognize how important that is. And I, in my working on the south side of Chicago and now the west side of Chicago, that's the one thing that really can make a, a huge difference is to have someone with you who is knowledgeable, engaged. Uh, and, you know, being that person, on the other hand, can be difficult. Um, we have to be respectful of the fact that the caretaker has to have some care taken of them sometimes. Uh, but if you can get that advocate to work on your side, the outcomes should be better. I want to switch gears a little bit here, Dr. Williams, and talk about the nutritional component of heart health, something that you know very well. Um, and so speaking of Serena Williams, I, I, I'm just wondering, like, what what is her diet made up of? I mean, like, is she just clued in on the secret of some foods that just have better good heart juju than others? Like what are those top heart healthy foods that athletes such as Serena should be targeting? So there's a little bit of history there. um, And that goes back to, I think about 2011 when her sister uh, Venus um, was playing the U S open, wasn't feeling well, uh, lost relatively early. And um, uh, then was discovered to have, or sometime around then, was discovered to have Sjogren's syndrome. And I'm sure she was tried on, you know, immune suppressive drugs. They don't make you feel very good. And the, the rumor is, and I've never talked to Venus Williams at all. I have talked to Serena and her husband briefly because we were, they were co-producers of the movie, uh, The Game Changers, and I got to meet them during the uh, red carpet event. But um, I didn't talk. I know that they were supporters of plant-based nutrition, but I am, my understanding is with Serena is that it started because of Venus. And it's her whole comeback. Um, was a, a remarkable journey of changing her nutrition. Um, and we've seen this with lupus and we've seen, you know, small trials of rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune conditions where your body's antibodies are attacking yourself. Um, and that's what uh, Sjogren's syndrome is. Um, dry mouth, dry eyes, arthritis as if it's lupus or rheumatoid uh, disease. And uh, she is still, she's 40 and she's out there. Um, and unfortunately, she lost uh, in the first round, the first time <clears throat> uh, in 22 U.S. Opens. So 21 and one uh, in the first round is actually pretty darn good. And hopefully she'll uh, be out there because she's playing some pretty good tennis. And that, I think that has to do with the nutrition. Um, I, I did see one um, uh, uh, article uh, or a quote by her that she says she's not exactly vegan. She's a Chigan. <laughs> so what, what does that mean? Well, that is, she's a totally vegan unless you see something on your plate and you're not looking and then she might <laughs> take a little piece. Of it. <laughs> um, but I think it's really helped her uh, tremendously. And uh, I, what I heard is that Serena had done it uh, for support. But when you look at the Novak Djokovic experience and not this particular tournament, unfortunately, has a whole different story you might want to talk about. Um, but when he went plant-based, <clears throat> and he was one of the co-producers or executive producers uh, for the Game Changers to talk specifically about plant-based nutrition and athleticism, it turns out that uh, it, he, he says that his recovery is better and that uh, his, he doesn't feel the aging. And I think most of us tennis players who are vegans feel exactly that same way. I'm playing with you know 19 and 20-year-olds all the time. And 
I may not be winning, but I'm not losing as much either. It's and playing out uh, uh, far below my age, yeah. uh, and that has to do with has to do with the nutrition. And I can play several days in a row and without stopping and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, we we hear so much about recovery time with plant-based athletes and how much faster it is compared to those who are eating that omnivorous or standard American diet. I'm curious, specific though, to, you know, just just heart health and, you know, cardiovascular Mm -hmm. health and the amount of time it takes for the heart to just kind of simmer down and get back, you know, to to like chill status almost. Um, I assume that it's also quicker for athletes then who eat that plant-based diet you were just talking about playing back-to-back as we speak Serena wins today she has to play tomorrow as well you think she's you know in better position that way with you know cardiovascular health also because of her diet if if indeed she still is plant-based I don't have direct knowledge I know that she supports it um, then that would be what we'd expect and that was Carl Lewis and that was um, Edwin Moses and uh, all the track and field uh, athletes and competing back to back, you, you really do need that recovery. And that is apparently happening. Now, obviously, recovery is partly determined by your fitness level. No question mm-hmm. about that. Um, but Serena looks like she's like she trained hard during the off season, the COVIDation of our nation, as I call it. And so <laughs> it's, uh, this, she took advantage of that. And she's, um, you know, looks a lot fitter than she has at, at some of the other tournaments. And so I'm thinking that she's going to do well. But obviously she, you know, this is a sport that's played with your mind and your body at the same time. And so she's got one of the strongest minds and hearts. And hopefully the body will, will see her through. What about those weekend warriors, you know, uh, who go out there and they have delusions of, you know, running onto, you know, the stage at Wimbledon. And but in reality, they're just in their neighborhood court. It happens to be a hard court. I don't know of many grass courts here in the U.S., Dr. Williams. Mm -hmm. But bottom line is, you know, how does nutrition help those uh, players in terms of cardiovascular health? uh, We, you know, even though they're just playing Saturdays, Sundays, whatever the case may be. Oh, I would say it's it's indirect, but it's absolutely huge. Now, this is this is the area where we could have some of the most good. Our one of the biggest problems with athleticism as you get older is injury. And sure, plant-based athletes get a, a few less injuries, and and they recover faster from the injuries because there's not a lot of serum inflammation going on. Okay, and that's been shown over and over again. Even our keto opposition can't argue that about the inflammation data. They may not know about it, but if they, if, if you are keto and you're listening, um, saying that here goes Dr. Williams again, <laughs> anti-keto, well, it's really anti-bad outcomes. Um, and, and so please uh, take a look at, um, you know, uh, low-carb diet and inflammation. And so when people, even eating the American Heart Association diet, I don't mind talking about it because the American Heart Association published this data, <laughs> uh, that AHA diet versus a vegan diet, see a dramatic drop in inflammation with vegan that you do not get uh, when, you, when you're doing a, um, sorry, when you're doing a, um, an American Heart Association diet that includes animals. And so it's pretty well-known data. Okay, so inflammation is one thing that should help your recovery and from injury. Now, the other side of it is weight. And there's blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, okay? But obesity is the number one thing that leads um, people as they're older to more degenerative joint disease. And then you get into the spiral. Well, I'm not exercising because it hurts. And it hurts because I'm gaining weight. 
and the gaining weight is because I'm not exercising. And you end up in this spiral, and the only way out of that is nutrition. Uh, people need to lose the extra pounds, get to the ideal body weight. Uh, they'll feel stronger. They'll feel faster. Uh, you can, and if you can get to the point where you could uh, take advantage of last week's European Society of Cardiology meeting, take advantage of high-intensity interval training. So I have patients today saying, oh, yeah, I walk three miles every day, okay, but I'm still feeling fatigued. I say, well, walk two blocks and then run two blocks and then walk two blocks and then run two blocks. While that literature that was, that was published last week did say that after a year, the people who do the slow training versus the people who do the high-intensity inter, high interval training are at the same spot at the end of a year. But during that year, the high-intensity inter, interval training people get stronger faster. And that's really what you want. That's the success that keeps people going. So I'd say it's really important to get your um, risk factors in order, particularly during the time of COVID where obesity and hypertension and diabetes leads to worse outcomes, uh, but, but also for athletic performance. Well, let's, let's talk brass tacks then. I mean, is it even fair to say diet is more important than exercise or vice versa? Is there, you know, a champion when it comes to cardiovascular health? So it really depends on, so for cardiovascular health, uh, I would say nutrition, nutrition is going to win that battle as it may be a four to one or a, you know, five to one ratio that is putting bad nutrition in. And it depends on what kind of nutrition is. Does, you know, the American Heart Association diet or the Mediterranean diet with more chicken and fish is not as bad as if you're eating the processed meat and the really high you know, high saturated fat, mixing dairy and meat together. Um, there are, and, and refined carbohydrates. You put all those things together that so many of the athletes are eating and the long-term outcomes are not good. When you raise that insulin level from that hamburger bun and then you're eating the cholesterol and the like, you're developing plaque, you're developing central obesity, you're developing insulin resistance, okay? But insulin is a growth hormone, and people will put on weight, they'll put on muscle mass, and they'll feel like they're getting stronger when they're in interior alignment for the bears, but then, you know, when they're 50, then they pay the price of that plaque, and you see the, the longevity of, of some of the professional athletes that focus on that kind of eating uh, not really doing well. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, everyone will re realize the power of plant-based nutrition uh, and adopt it for their long-term health, not just short-term athletic performance. Wow, that, I mean, five to one ratio, that's, that's it really, I mean, that, that speaks volumes. And I think maybe a lot of people get tripped up because they think, well, uh, I can exercise away those pounds. And as long as I'm, you know, not carrying that extra weight, I'll be okay. But we do know with the plant-based diet that that can reverse heart disease and help actually unclog those arteries. But correct me if I'm wrong, you cannot outrun a clogged artery. And so it turns out that when, per, uh, when people exercise, even though you've seen some famous cases, Jim, starting with Jim Fix in the 1977, uh, people who are running, running, running and end up um, having a heart attack, in general, it does help you. The so-called uh, a prepared muscle uh, set because the arteries, as they're closing, if you're stressing it every day and exercising it every day, you try to develop those small channels called collaterals. Uh, and getting collateral blood flow uh, will allow people to actually do well. Probably the most famous case of that would have been Pete Maravich. Uh, Pistol Pete played for LSU, New Orleans Jazz, 
really was an unbelievable athlete. Um, and it turns out he had a congenital coronary anomaly where the major artery to the, to the front of his heart was actually coming off the wrong area. It was coming off of the pulmonary artery. So it's being fed with vein, blood from a vein rather than an artery. And that low oxygen tension over decades uh, really did hurt his heart. Now, he went through a lot of other things, but, but um, he was able to pre- uh, perform at a high level uh, despite having uh, a relatively poor blood flow to his heart because he trained so well. And so hopefully that's a, the, you know, the exception rather than the rule, but um, ultimately you're taking a big chance. It's best to keep your arteries clean <laughs> and, uh, and to, to keep your insulin levels very low so you're not uh, actually uh, developing the plaque that's going to hurt you later in life. In terms of exercise, is that kind of like a Goldilocks situation where you can exercise too much, you can exercise too little, but then there's a just the right amount of exercise that is the perfect for heart health? Highly controversial. I will do a shameless plug for uh, my former fellow, Sean Schweringen, um, who if, if people are um, interested in this particular question uh, about how much exercise is too much, uh, he and I published an article, mostly he, uh, in the International Journal of Disease Reversal and, and Prevention. That's IJDRP.org. And you can look him up about exercise. And there, there are some concerns about the number of deaths that happen with marathon runners. And pretty much everybody who qualifies to, to run a marathon is in shape, and yet they have a, a certain number. Typically, you know, get 30,000 people running, one or two are going to pass away. Um, and if they don't get the CPR and um, they, all the people are geared up at the, at, the organized, the, at the organizer level to make sure that they have the ambulances that they need. Part of it has to do with overload of um, conditions of the heart that people don't know they have. And having a fitness test, um, you know, going in to have your phys- a physical exam to clear you may not hear that murmur uh, that says that you have what like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's one of the major issues where the muscle is thick and gives a lot of rhythm disturbances. And uh, most people of the lay audience wouldn't remember that if they're our age or my age anyway, because Hank gathers playing for Loyola Marymount. Um, If they Google it, they'll see, you know, what that condition was like and how it could have been treated. He could have had a different outcome, but nowadays we have AEDs in all the gyms and we have AEDs in all the marathons. And so you do have the extreme athletes coming up with cardiac events. A lot of the time when they're in their 40s, it really is coronary disease. It really is that they ate the plant, uh, not enough plants and too many animals and plugged the arteries, uh, thinking that it was going to be okay um, because they're exercising a lot. Um, Now, if the other side of it, though, is that the marathoners tend to actually have more buildup of plaque in their arteries, more calcium. Now, they do tend to do better with that level of calcium than the average population because their fitness level is high. And there's some theories, and let's just wait for more data to come out, saying that that isn't real plaque, that that is just a response to the repetitive, you know, having your heart rate go up and stay up for for hours and hours on end, that that is what's leading to the calcification. Um, All we can say is that you'd rather not have calcified arteries. um, And so maybe there's uh, some moderation where you can exercise with high intensity and maybe a little less duration 
um, and get the optimum. So the, the reason I'm the, what's backing me up on this is uh, uh, people will be very interested uh, since our topic today was kind of like tennis is that that is the one sport that has uh, or the group of sports racket sports that has an amazing track record for decreasing mortality. Marathons do not. Um, football, this is from the British Heart Journal, so that's soccer for the Americans, does not improve mortality. Uh, swimming is a little neutral to s- slightly beneficial, but racket sports actually do uh, save lives. And so I've seen about three different articles. <coughs> there, somewhere between a 40 to 57% decrease in mortality. Now you can argue, okay, wait a minute. Uh, we heard that with the Johns Hopkins Medical Group that they compared baseball, football, basketball, golf, and tennis. The only two, from from medical school on, the only two that were played lifetime, you know, were going to be golf and tennis. Um, The other three sports get dropped by people when they get into middle age. Uh, And the only one with a mortality benefit was tennis. Well, you know, that was not a great comparison. You have three sports that people won't play and one that doesn't, a lot of oxygen consumption, plus a lot of stress, which isn't usually good for you. (laughs) (laughs) So... So maybe that wasn't a fair comparison. And maybe the British Medical Journal data isn't a fair comparison either because, you know, tennis players have more money or they're better, they're more strategic thinkers or uh, they are, if you're, you know, only people who play a long time are the people who are really good at it. And if you're good at it, you're good at a lot of other things. And they can't, they can't take into account all confounding variables about how diplomatic a person you are because you learn those lessons on the tennis court, which is a real phenomenon. Um, so it, it's, uh, it may be confounded, but the data is actually pretty clear. Dramatic decreases in mortality if you're playing tennis. So maybe you don't have to exercise so hard. Maybe it should be short bursts of intensity. Uh, real quick here, uh, because I do want to hit on two other things uh, before I let you go. Um, I, 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 I want to ask you uh, if we can get some practical tips. I think that a lot of people are probably listening to this, watching this right now, saying, all right, well, they've, they've talked in generalities. Let's try to give some specifics. Could you list off uh, for people who want to improve their tennis game and their cardiovascular health overall, basically? You know, what are uh, some of the top foods you would recommend? And then what are the ones you would say absolutely positively get those off? for your plate right now? So the one thing that was popular in the 70s, you know, people would say, I'm, I'm going to do a carb load. That probably isn't the best thing to do unless you're doing it early, early on, you know, several hours before the match and it's complex carb. Because, you know, and actually there, at this tournament, there was an American player, I won't say his name, uh, because he's a young guy, um, who actually was uh, using a particular popular brand of candy bar during his match. He ended up losing, um, but I don't know at, you know, at his age, he's so young, he probably could get away with it. But to actually give yourself a fat load and a sugar load at the same time, you're decreasing vascular function and that insulin rise is going to drive that blood sugar uh, intracellularly and you're going to feel pretty bad an hour later. So, uh, so I would say that would be on the list of things not to do is the sugary drinks um, and candy bars. Um, But complex carbohydrates, even uh, if you're doing fructose, which doesn't generate as much of a, uh, that is, you know, doing a banana, doing some kind of uh, complex carbohydrate fruit, uh, actually does work pretty well. And people can use that for the long matches. It's really important when you're playing three out of five sets, they have something that you can go to uh, that's complex. It isn't going to drive your blood sugar first way up and then way down. Um, and he's going to make sure that you still have enough energy to, con- to keep competing. 
All right. And then I got to ask you about the story of the Australian Open. I'm doing a little prep for this interview. I stumble across an article that says famed cardiologist saves fans life. What is this story? 2017. This is a heck of a thing you're involved in. Right. Well, it turns out that uh, until COVID took over, I just got word that uh, the Australian Open and sorry for any fans who hadn't heard this yet. Australian Open 2021 will have no international visitors. And so that's breaking a streak of 19 um, in a row. It wasn't just tennis. I was actually lecturing at, lecturing at the uh, Society of Nuclear Medicine for um, uh, Australia, New Zealand Society of Nuclear Medicine, Victoria, Tasmania chapter. Uh, I, they were probably sick of hearing from me anyway. <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of the kids in the room, the young nuclear medicine technologists, uh, were in kindergarten when I started giving those lectures. Um, it turns out that um, the Australian Open has, has been a wonderful time to get away from Chicago. Two weeks less winter, two weeks more summer. That's four weeks as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so this one year in 2017, uh, we were in the stands and um, there was a gentleman who got up and uh, immediately went down. And I keep my little uh, EKG on my device on my phone went over there to him, felt that he was pulseless, uh, and started CPR. Now, fortunately, within about 90 seconds, he was awake and looking around, kind of stunned and, you know, trying to push my hands off of his chest, which was great. So we got him up to the top of the stairs. um, And I just took my little EKG device, and it actually didn't look like a heart attack because you sometimes can see EKG changes of a heart attack. Um, but But he had a, and he had a normal rhythm. So when I got the whole story, it turns out that he uh, had a little bit of claustrophobia and he was sitting in the stands, you know, very close to the front, Uh, uh, but he was surrounded by people and he just felt like he needed to get some air. And it turns out he was uh, turning, starting to get sweaty, starting to turn ashen. And that those are the signs of so-called vasovagal syncope where his vagus nerve just sent out this, this signal, heart rate slows down, blood pressure goes to zero uh, almost, and, uh, and he went down. Fortunately, uh, just you know, he probably and hopefully would have come out of it on his own, um, but the CPR probably helped a little bit uh, to bring the blood flow back and get a little bit of adrenaline, which is the, count, the, the thing that you need to counter it. Uh, so it turns out he was fine. You know, obviously we don't name names of people, but he's actually a fairly famous guy and he had a winery all over the world, including an office in Chicago. I don't drink wine, but he sent a couple of cases that I could give away <laughs> to people. So very nice. He didn't need to do anything like that for me, but um, just very happy to help and happy that he was okay. What a story. And uh, lastly, in 30 seconds or less here, uh, Djokovic, the DQ this year, just or unjust? It's, it's a both, uh, honestly. It really is both. Uh, to discuss it, if he was getting frustrated, um, uh, Karina Busta was actually playing really good tennis, and, you know, but Djokovic, you know he's going to come through in that situation in five sets. He was, he's playing such the best tennis of his vegan life, or this <laughs> portion of his career that's plant-based. And it turns out that he was expressing some anger. He's a lot of stuff going on. He's getting a lot of criticism for the Adria tour and the lack of social distancing and the fact that they had a player party and five of them, including him and his wife, got COVID. And then he's getting a lot of um, concern because he, even though the ATP tour is 50% owned by the players, 
he felt that it wasn't enough and he wanted to start his own uh, sort of union to try to negotiate, to be at the table to negotiate. Um, it's the, the idea of coming up with something in tennis where you're not supported by Rafael Nadal and not supported by Roger Federer on the med side is kind of like, I can, I'm just imagining being in his head about how much stress he's, he's under, plus the 29 and 0. Can he really, with a little help of COVID, canceling a bunch of tournaments, go undefeated for an entire year? Because that's what was on the line. Mm-hmm. So you can see him uh, get frustrated after some shots, and everybody saw him slam a ball into the side um, uh, of the stands. There's nobody there. And uh, that was not good behavior, but it doesn't uh, equal a code violation. But it sort of set up the next one, which was a, a couple games later when he got his service broken and he's about to, the other guy's about to serve for, this, for the first set. And he just flicked the ball. He didn't hit it that hard. He didn't hit it nearly as hard as he, as he angrily hit the ball earlier. But it was the wrong place at the wrong time. Caught her in a bad location. If she was just two inches one way or the other, or she had looked up and put the hand up. There's so many, a cacophony of unlikely circumstances that led that being that the rule had to kick in. And we've seen it with Tim Henman at Wimbledon, and they were really upset. Tim Henman was like the upcoming kid, the Brit, and nobody had, you know, this was long before Andy Murray. You know, it had been Fred Perry since they had a, a great British hope. You know they didn't want to default Tim Henman, but they did. And so, as it turns out, if you hit something or you throw something and you do damage to somebody, um, you've got to be disqualified. And so I know, I think Novak in, in retrospect, um, even though he argued very articulately, are you really going to do this to the top player in the tournament on center court with all these people watching? Um, are you really going to uh, remove me from the tournament? And they said, yes. And he shook hands and walked off, you know, and I know he got a lot of criticism for by some of the people um, because he didn't do a post-match interview right away. But you know what? <laughs> He went on Twitter. He apologized. That's the way people do things these days. And uh, I can imagine all the emotions that were going through the, the sudden suddenness of the loss, uh, not just in the tournament, but everything else that was going, his impact, the likelihood that he's going to get a union, the prize money, all of it disappearing in one little flick of a, of a tennis ball, including the 20, the undefeated season. I can imagine I wouldn't want to be in a press conference for a few minutes. Give me, give me some time to, to calm down. So, so I think we have to forgive him for that. And uh, he was apologetic enough. And, you know, it's, uh, it's something he'll never quite live down, uh, particularly if he ends up like one short of Roger uh, or run short of Rafa for the greatest number of Grand Slams all time. Ooh. People will look Ooh. back and say, COVID year, there was nobody there. You were so far afield, uh, uh, the favorite, and this is what you did. Oh, man. Yeah, I, that would almost deserve an asterisk after the number of majors he's won. Dag on, that would, that's a heck of a thing. I know that you have to run. I could talk tennis with you in sports all day. You know that. Uh, but I greatly appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Williams. All right. Take care now. Thanks. tell you something that was amazing to hear him talk about saving that fan at the australian open helping them out now i really hope i really hope that dr williams decides to write an autobiography someday i mean his life really it's a hollywood script to rise up 
the way that he was able to become a tennis pro and then the president of the American College of Cardiology and now just the expert of all cardiovascular experts. Just amazing what this man has been able to accomplish. So cool that he was on the show today. Like, seriously, I am really excited that he was on the show today. Dr. Williams is awesome. All right. I did a little number crunching here. And it should come as no surprise that tennis is a workout. Right? We're all in agreement here. What you may not have known, though, is that they've actually done studies to figure out how far players run during a match. And the numbers are insanely impressive, given the fact that the court for singles matches is only 27 feet wide. And then for doubles, it doesn't get much wider than that. It only goes up to 36 feet. So that's about eight and a quarter and 11 meters, right? If you're into the metric system outside of the U.S. Now get this. There are 5,280 feet in a mile. And during the 2015 Australian Open, Sports Illustrated and IBM were wondering the same thing, wanted to know how far players were running. So they decided, let's measure it. Through the first three rounds of the tournament, they found that one player, David Ferrer, ran more than six miles in a match. While others, like Rafa Nadal and Key Nishikori, they ran a little bit less. But interestingly, the only vegan who was studied, Novak Djokovic, he actually ran the least. Only about half the distance of Ferrer. And same deal for Serena Williams. She ran way less than Caroline Wozniacki in the finals of the U.S. Open in 2014. They were also tracked. Now, Serena cruised to victory that day. I mean, straight sets. So why the difference? Well, what researchers surmised, and I'm pretty sure what Dr. Williams would say also, is that it depends on the style of game you play. If you're playing closer to the net, you're not going to run as much. If you're further back on the court, have more distance to cover... You're going to run a lot more. It makes sense, right? But for weekend warriors who have Wimbledon dreams, it's kind of a fancy way of saying people like you and me, Fitbit also ran a study that found that we are more along the lines of Ferrer and Wozniacki. We run an average of 10,680 steps during one hour of singles competition, and almost 8,000 if we're playing doubles. Always helps to have somebody pick up the slack a little bit, right? So the company says that that equates to somewhere between three miles and five miles per hour of tennis action. That's not too shabby. That will definitely, definitely get your heart rate up. All right. As much as I would love to talk about tennis all day, let's move on. One of the biggest foes in heart health is high cholesterol. And that can offset all of the hours that have been spent on the court working up that sweat. And a poor diet can definitely put you on the fast track to go down to heart disease in straight sets. So what can we do to fix that? And actually, let's start at the beginning and wonder, 
what is cholesterol? We're about to go to Cholesterol College right now as we revisit an artery-unclogging conversation with Dr. Steve Niebuhr. We get asked a lot about cholesterol. What is it? What's good cholesterol? What's bad cholesterol? What causes bad cholesterol to go into the blood system? How does it affect me? How does it get treated? On and on and on. Aside from fiber and protein, cholesterol is probably our most requested topic. So we're going to tackle that. And joining me is a man who is always in demand, Dr. Stephen Niebuhr from the Barnard Medical Center. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Chuck. So I wanted to bring you on because I just heard this. This is a new... Uh, uh, study that was put out. I, I saw this in Harvard Medical School. It said, uh, title is Inherited High Cholesterol Goes Untreated. And it says about four out of every 1,000 adults are born with a genetic predisposition to having abnormally high cholesterol. Yeah. Really not that big of a surprise there. What is the bigger surprise is that the majority of them go untreated. Um Matter of fact, uh, only half of mm-hmm. the people with that genetic marker are are receiving treatment. Yeah. As a physician, I mean that's that's pretty alarming. Why why do you think that so few are seeking treatment for this? Well, I, I don't know that I'd say they're not seeking treatment for it. I, I think they're they're just not being diagnosed with it because maybe they're not seeing their their doctors. Right. You know, um, you hear about this sometimes with conditions like type two diabetes or high blood pressure. These quote unquote silent killers. Mm-hmm. So conditions that you can have but not know about it. Right. Right. It's not like having a, a sore shoulder where you know your so- shoulder is sore. Uh, having high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high blood sugar. Uh, we generally don't feel those things. Right. Or at least not until it's too late. Right. Um, so this doesn't really surprise me. Uh, we try to get a lot of people in to see their primary care doctors, whether it's myself or somebody else, just for general screening purposes. So cholesterol is one of those things we check sometimes yearly, sometimes more often, sometimes not. Um, but generally, we check that on, on almost everybody, I would say, if not everyone. According to this, uh, yeah, the silent killer part rings true. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have familial hypercholesterolemia. Yeah, you got it. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> 13 times more uh, at risk of having a heart attack compared to somebody yeah. without that genetic marker. Right. That's that's significant. That is, absolutely. Since especially heart disease is the number one killer in America. So if your risk is even higher for this for something that's already number one, that's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> According to this, uh, anybody whose cholesterol level, uh, LDL, mm. is uh, 190 uh, or higher should be screened for yeah. the genetic marker. Yeah. Um, there are two different types of cholesterol, though. And I think that we need to get nerdy about this because people hear the terms good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Bad cholesterol we've already identified as LDL. Right. What is good cholesterol? Well, let let me first blow your mind for just a second. Blow it. All right. Here we go. There's only actually one type of cholesterol. There is there is only cholesterol. Okay. All right. It is neither good nor bad. Okay. It is both a blessing and a curse. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we say LDL and we say HDL, the, the bad and the good cholesterols, respectively, uh, what we're actually talking about is the, the transporters for the cholesterol. Mm. Okay. Okay. So do you need a minute to absorb that? I, I mean, like my mind's blown, but yeah. that's what I love about this show, man. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of numb to the mind-blowing stuff. So just right, bring right. it on. All right. All right. We'll do. So, so when you eat something that has cholesterol in it. Right which is really only animal products. Right. And I'll, I will get to that in just a second as to why that is. 
you're eating cholesterol. You're not eating good cholesterol. You're not eating bad cholesterol. You're just eating cholesterol, mm-hmm. right? But it's what happens inside your body that makes it the good or the bad. And even that, I feel like, is a little unfair to the cholesterol. Hmm. I don't know if anyone's ever said that in the no. history of the world before. No. So cholesterol's getting a bad rap? I mean, the only time I've ever seen anything <laughs> close to that is when there was, I think, a headline on Time magazine that said, butter is back. And I was like, well, ah, I just Well, don't I'm not defending that. butter. No. And, I, and I'm, I'm not exactly defending cholesterol, but it does have its useful purposes in our bodies. Okay. We, we would die without cholesterol. If, okay. you, if you were somehow magically able to take all the cholesterol out of somebody's body, they would cease to live. Mm. They could not live without the cholesterol. So to say that it's bad is not really fair, right? Okay. But it's bad in certain places. Okay. Right? Such J- as? Well, such as when it builds up in the lining of your arteries. That's not a good thing. Correct. Right. Right. So you know, one it, it'd be like saying when you're when you're I don't know food is going down the drain in your sink or something you're cleaning off the dishes that that's the bad food that's right. going down the drain. It's not really. I mean, it, it was good food. It had its purpose, um, but over time, all that stuff you wash down the drain can build up mm-hmm. and can narrow the drain. A right. Bit. So in that case, it's not good. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a good analogy. You're always the king uh, of analogies, man. But so what the uh, what the what the good and the bad cholesterol really do in our bodies are has to do with whether the cholesterol is going to our body or it's going from our body. Mm. Now it's it's inside our body, right. so it's still it's still in us. Right. But the the bad cholesterol is kind of what uh, brings cholesterol to the rest of our bodies, ah. which again is not necessarily bad because we need it. But when it's too high. That's when it's a problem. Gotcha. And the good cholesterol is actually what takes the cholesterol away from our bodies, brings it back to our liver, and helps us get rid of it. Right. And it sounds weird to say the good cholesterol brings the cholesterol, but really more accurately, it's like it's like a taxi or a bus or something okay. like that. So the HDL and the good cholesterol are, are transporters. Okay. Like, like that movie, The Transporter. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I need a transporter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they bring it somewhere. It's, All right. it's Most of the cholesterol in our bodies are um, is made in the liver. Mm-hmm. And so to get it into our cells, it has to kind of hop on a taxi or hop on a bus, get from the liver to the rest of the body where it can do what it needs to do. Right. All right. I I think you just keyed in on something that we actually produce cholesterol ourselves. That's something that I think often goes overlooked. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the process there? You said it it comes from the liver. Well, remember, too, I just said also we need it to live. If you took all the cholesterol out of my body, I I wouldn't be here anymore. Right, 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 right. I'd be here, but I wouldn't be uh, doing this right now. So you you need it in your body. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of it's made in the liver, but our our individual cells can actually make cholesterol as well. Mm. And and what it does is, this is is where it's kind of cool in a nerdy way. That one of the main purposes, and there's several, but one of the main ones is to actually go into the, the lining around the cells. So what what in plants is called the cell wall. In, in, in humans and animals, it's called the cell membrane. But it actually goes in there and it, and it, it makes it softer so that we can move around. Hmm. So plants are not really moving around so much. They're, right. they're stiff. They have walls. Right. We have membranes that are actually soft and can move, and that's why you and I are able to move right now. Our hearts are able to beat. Um, we can jump around and walk around and do everything we need to do. Um, it, 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 think of it. I'll give you another analogy. Okay. You know those like inflatable buoy things sometimes you see in, I don't know, with people swimming in lakes or maybe just hanging out in lakes or something yeah, like yeah. that, and they're filled with air? Yeah. Now imagine the, the the lake freezes. Okay. Right? Let's say there's none of those buoys in there. The, the, it's going to be a solid block of ice, right? right? But now imagine you keep putting more and more of those buoys in there. 
the more you have in there, the, the more the ice is still going to be able to move around, right? Because sure. these things are soft, inflatable. And so the, the cholesterol kind of functions like that, actually. It goes into the lining around the cells, and it, it disturbs the regular pattern that's in there. And it actually makes it softer, in a sense. Huh. So Isn't that neat? That's the story of cholesterol. Yeah, that's it, do- why we need it, it does other things as well. I mean, even in the lining of the cells, uh, it does help with transport, like helping to bring some things into the mm-hmm. cells or get things out of the cells. Helps with signaling, right? Uh, so communicating from one cell to another cell. Um, it actually helps in your in the neurons in your brain. Um, they're they have a wrapping around them that's basically insulation, and cholesterol is a big part of that. So as a as a it's not, it's not really a fat, but as this, like, molecule that's similar to fat, it, it helps insulate the, the neurons from touching each other, uh, from the, the signals getting mixed up and right, confused right. when they're going from one neuron to another. So it actually does have a lot of useful purposes in the body. That's interesting. And one more big one. By all means. It is the, it's, it's the starter molecule for making hormones. So for making things like estrogen and testosterone. Uh, and a lot of the, you know, even even cortisol and things like that, it's the starting molecule that our bodies use to make those things, those hormones. See, you just hit me with three things I was unaware of. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Do we produce enough cholesterol that we don't have to consume it? Yeah, a- absolutely, because it's so vital for, for life. Right. So, so we do. We have zero dietary requirement for cholesterol. Very interesting. You could, you could eat not a drop of cholesterol for the rest of your life and do just fine. Mm-hmm. And then let me hit you with this one, sure. uh, Einstein. How is it? <laughs> how is it? <laughs> I don't know if I go that far. I mean, I would. I mean, I you blew so. my mind, all man. Right, right. You know, um, how is it then if things are kind of similar? How can you discern HDL and LDL when you take somebody's blood like how, how does that differ in the identification process it, so the the i don't know if we said what it stands for do we i don't think we no did. We, we did not okay that now would be a good time please drop me with that lab <laughs> okay so the, the it has to do with how dense the particles are or okay. the transporters so the hdl is high density and the l is lipoprotein mm-hmm. the ldl is low density lipoprotein and the 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 kind of where it gets cool, and this is why I love the science stuff and the biochemistry. The the LDL or or um, low density lipoprotein or or HDL, either one. The lipoprotein is actually lipo is fat, like lipid, right? right. And then protein. So, like I said before, the protein is is kind of the transporter. It's like right. the, like the bus or the whatever, however you want to think of it. Um, and wait, let me see where was I going with this? Hold on, give me a second. So the purpose of it is to transport it through the blood. Okay. Right. And the blood is is mostly water. This is again, where was he where's he going? But I'm going somewhere, I promise. Blood is mostly water. The cholesterol is more like fat. It's not fat, but if you think of it that way for a second, it kinda works. Fat doesn't easily flow through water. Right. They don't they don't mix, right? Yeah. Oil and water don't mix. So in order to get it to flow through the blood, you need a you need the transporter. Mm-hmm. Right? I keep thinking of the movie with you know, the, the transporters. Yeah. Yeah. But so that that lipoprotein actually is what holds on to the cholesterol and transports it through the, the water, or in this case, the blood. Now, how much cholesterol is packed in there is what differentiates the, the low density from the high density. Mm-hmm. Cholesterol itself is very low density. Right. It's, it's, like, it's like fat. Think of, again, the, the oil floating on top of the water. That's because it's low density. If it was high density, it'd be heavy and it would sink. But so... Um, the low density tends to have a lot of cholesterol in it, whereas the high density is more compact. There's less cholesterol in there, uh, and so there's a there's a difference there. And when they do the 
whatever they do in the laboratories, all the magic with the, the machines there, they can differentiate between the high-density and the low-density uh, cholesterol molecules or wow. carriers. Wow. And actually, if you want another... I mean, just bring Should on we just the keep science, going? dude. This is awesome. All right, so we don't we don't actually measure the LDL when we draw your blood and we check your lipid panel. We don't actually measure the the bad cholesterol. Right. What we measure is the total cholesterol, which is relatively easy to to measure. We measure the good cholesterol or the HDL. I, I want to stop using good cholesterol. Right. We measure the HDL and we measure the triglyceride content, which is the the actual fat that's in the blood. And there's a formula to to calculate or or to the total cholesterol is part HDL, part LDL, and it's one-third of the triglycerides. Mm-hmm. So if you know everything but one, in this case the LDL, you can just figure that out through algebra. How about that? So we don't bother calculating the LDL. Mm. Now where you run into problems with this is when people have very high triglyceride contents. And so if they have a lot of fat circulating through the blood, it's going to artificially raise the total cholesterol number. And above a certain point, we don't calculate the LDL anymore because it's just not going to be accurate. Sure. And then in that case, you would directly measure the LDL. Interesting. But, you you know, if your triglycerides are that high, there's probably something not quite right going on. Yeah, Or some yeah. room for some improvement. Yeah, well, then it's a good, a good thing that yeah. they're at the doctor then, isn't it? Exactly. Because there are conditions that will do that. Yeah. But that's that's a whole other show topic. Um. So – when we eat, as we've discussed at length on this mm-hmm. show, little to no cholesterol in a plant-based diet. Yeah. But when you eat meat and when you eat dairy, yeah. are you getting the cholesterol then that was naturally produced by that animal? Is that what you're taking that's in? That's absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, every every animal, everything that's walking around out in the world, whether it's a cow, chicken, turkey, pig, whatever, human, everything's got cholesterol in it. All right, except for the plants, they don't have cholesterol in it. Right, they have they have molecules that are similar to cholesterol. Right, uh, these like phytosterols they call them, which which there's a, there's some interesting research on them um, that they they kind of look like cholesterol and they might actually block the cholesterol receptors in our body. Mm-hmm. So kind of a neat neat thing there. Interesting. So let's uh, let's. Switch gears here a little <laughs> right, bit. Like right. I feel like I just need a minute to yeah, absorb take, everything take that I mean. But I can't pause the show oh, because okay. then we'll lose listeners. Right, and right. We, ju- we don't want that. No, no, that's true. No, they, I hope I they didn't lose anybody with that. No, man. Okay. I think that like seriously. Now I'm going to get those emails saying bring on Doctor okay. Steve. Okay, all right. I mean that's just what's going <laughs> to happen. Here. Um, we know that high cholesterol has been linked to chronic disease. The mm-hmm. big one is heart disease. Are yeah. there any others that uh, that it's been tied to? Yeah, well, so when when you get cholesterol in your body, when it's developing in your arteries, it's not just developing in your heart. It's developing literally everywhere that you have blood flow. Mm. And so some of the more, uh, or I should say maybe less thought of ones are in your brain. You get cholesterol buildup there. And remember, this is inside the arteries. This is in the blood vessels. This is not inside the cells where it's supposed to be. Right. This is in the blood vessels. So you can get some buildup in the brain, which if you're limiting blood flow to your brain. Is that like plaque? Yeah, that, absolutely. Ooh, yeah. that's not good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So not a good thing, no. right? You want as much blood flow in your brain as you can get. Of course. Um, another place is actually, and this is, uh, if you have little children listening, this might be a good time to pause it for I a sec. I can't imagine that little Timmy is listening to a podcast uh, on cholesterol. But, but it's common to see erectile dysfunction as an initial presentation of heart disease. Because in the penis, you need good blood flow to achieve uh, the perhaps let's call it the desired result. Holy right? cow! Now my mind is officially blown. <laughs> so if you can't get that blood flow that you need, you end up having erectile dysfunction. Wow! Wow! Yeah. 
All right. I mean, when you when you have an erection, you're basically opening the floodgates and flooding as much blood in there as you as you need to maintain what you need to maintain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, if you can't get that blood in there because of you know narrowed arteries, it, you're not going to have the desired result. Wow. And that's why the plant based diet. I mean, we haven't touched on that too much on this show. I think this actually may be a first. Um, that's why the plant-based diet then helps with ED yeah. for that very reason. Yeah, helps with ED, helps with chest pain from heart disease, can yeah. help with blood flow in the brain. Um, and in fact, one of the, you know, when we when we see a young man, let's say somebody in uh, 40s or 30s or, or, you know, anywhere around there, um, or even 50s, whatever, coming in and, and they're, they're, they're saying, I'm basically healthy except I have this erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. issue. Uh, that's always a cause for concern. You say, well, that's not normal. That should be that should be working well. Right. And so we we'll, we'll check a lipid level and we'll investigate for causes for you know, cholesterol buildup, basically. Interesting. Uh, what about uh, the arteries, man? I mean, because that one is is often talked about. Typically, if we're talking about high cholesterol and plaque deposits and mm-hmm. things like that, you always see the graphic that's you know the arteries going right to the heart. Yeah. How long does it take for somebody that? does have a lot of cholesterol on their diet. How long does it take for that plaque to kind of build up there and really start to cause some serious issues? It, it, well, it doesn't take long. There's been studies over the years showing um, buildup in, in even teenagers. Uh, there was a study done on, on um, soldiers who died in Vietnam, and they had, uh, I think it was like a third of them, had significant buildup of plaque in their arteries, mm. not to the point where they were having chest pain, but it was still there when they did autopsy. Uh, and then within the last few years, I heard of a study where they, they somehow used ultrasound to look at uh, fetuses. So, you know, babies that aren't even born yet inside the mother. And if the mother's eating a, a high fat, high cholesterol diet, they could see microscopic buildup of, of cholesterol inside no. the baby. I mean, you're talking like one or two cells thick. No. So not, not clinically significant, but still there. Yeah. Wow. Because, I mean, the mother's blood and the baby's blood are, are basically flowing at the same time you get crossover between the mother and the baby through the placenta and cholesterol can certainly go through there anything other than uh heart disease there as far as cholesterol the, the being nefarious one? yeah yeah i mean you can get you can get gallstones from uh higher cholesterol levels um cholesterol is actually secreted out of the liver into the gi tract mm-hmm. um it's a cholesterol is a component of bile and so when you have too much cholesterol, the, the bile can become too concentrated. You can end up with gallstones, having to get your gallbladder removed. So we see that sometimes in people that eat a very high-fat diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can aggravate the gallbladder. And if you already have stones in there, you can end up having to get your gallbladder removed. Interesting. Uh, but the cholesterol really goes it goes all over the place. Um, circle back to heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, we've heard, especially working here at the Physicians Committee, where people will reverse their heart disease yeah. on this plant-based diet. Yeah. I'm assuming then, just talking to you for this past half hour, a lot of that has to do with the lower cholesterol levels. Mm-hmm. How long does it take then for those deposits, that plaque buildup, to kind of work its way out of the system once you stop ingesting that excess cholesterol? It, it, it can take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. Sure. But typically people feel better even within a few weeks so if I see somebody who maybe has some chest discomfort when they're exercising, just let's say mild, because if it was severe, they'd probably be in the hospital. Yeah. But you know, they say, I, I do fine with exercise, but if I really push myself, my chest gets a little tight, maybe it gets a little hard to breathe. And I'm not talking about asthma. I'm talking about cardiac right. blood flow. Right, right. Um, generally, if they really go 100% on a, on a plant-based diet, they cut out all the animal products, uh, they cut out processed foods and stuff like that. Um, even within a few weeks, sometimes people will say they feel better. Now, that's not to say that the cholesterol is 
cells being removed within a few weeks, uh, but they're getting better blood flow, obviously. Right, right. That's why they're not having the symptoms. But it can take a couple, sometimes a couple of years sure. for to have, uh, let's say, radiologically significant decrease in plaque. Meaning if you were to go in and do an angiogram, you know, where you're going through the groin or, or more commonly now through the wrist, you can actually measure how much plaque is in the arteries. Huh. And so to see that regress or to see those arteries open up, uh, the, the studies that have been done are typically over the time period of a couple of years, wow. and they'll see some opening there. You know, I really wish that I had one of those done. Oh, my uh, goodness. Just to measure it when I was, you know, <laughs> at my heaviest of 420 pounds versus yeah. today. I'm, I'm just really curious about, like, is there still gunk built up in there? Yeah. Because, I'm, I mean, I straight abused my body for more than a quarter century. Yeah. I remember you saying that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was major abuse. Well, generally, you know, generally we don't really check that. And, and the reason is because we, we're not going to tell people to do something different. You know, right. if you're feeling fine, if you're saying, you know, I'm walking upstairs, I'm exercising, I'm doing fine. It, in a sense, and, and don't, this is going to sound out of context, but it doesn't really matter how much plaque is in there because you're able to function, do everything you normally do. And the, the, the advice that I'm going to give you is going to be exactly the same. So whether you have, let's say, 50% narrowing or 10% narrowing or zero narrowing, right. I'm still going to tell you, eat a plant-based diet, don't consume any extra cholesterol, uh, and exercise regularly. You know, Now, if you're having so much narrowing that you're getting heart problems, like you're getting chest pain, trouble breathing, stuff like that, then it's significant. Mm. But if you're not having any of those, it, the, the message is still the same. It's you got to eat better. You got to cut out anything with cholesterol in it. You got to cut out the processed foods. You got to cut out the high fat foods. Right. So, so that's why we don't generally check to see like, oh, do you have, you know, 10% narrowing, 20%? Yeah. Right? That's just a thought. High cholesterol, if they're not adjusting their diet, you turn on the TV, you're always yeah. seeing advertisements for different medications. Yeah. And the big one for cholesterol, I believe, is statins. Statins, you got it. Yeah. What, what are they? So the, the technical term is HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, mm-hmm. uh, which in the, in the body, when you make your own cholesterol, as, as we've said several times already today, the, the enzyme that catalyzes or, or, or does the first step in the reaction is this HMG-CoA reductase, which HMG is a really, really long term, which I don't even have committed to memory, to be honest, in full disclosure here. Won't but, hold that against But you're you. welcome to look it up. Uh, and, and so the statins actually block that enzyme from working. So in a sense, what they're doing is, tell, is, is having your body make less cholesterol. Hmm. How effective are they compared to a diet adjustment? Uh, that's 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 a question that does not have a uh, does not have a simple answer. Gotcha. So they are effective. Statins are definitely effective. There's been numerous studies over the years showing improved mortality with statins, uh, fewer heart attacks, fewer strokes. Um, but but similar studies have been done on diet, and we can see that if you change around your diet from the standard American diet to the plant based diet, your risk for heart attack, your risk for stroke also goes down. Um, a lot of times. Perhaps cardiologists or even primary care doctors will tell people to do both. Um, so what we see a lot is people go into their doctor. They'll have high cholesterol. The doctor will say, well, you got to eat better. you got to exercise. And also, here's your statin. Right. But what we try to do here, at, at least at Barnard Medical Center, and I know a lot of doctors across the country are trying to do it as well, is really tell people what it means to eat better. So a lot of times people will say, well, my doctor told me to eat better, so I'm eating more chicken. Right. Mm. It doesn't really do it. Right. Still got high fat, it's still got cholesterol in it, you know, or, oh, I'm putting olive oil all over everything. Well, that's, that's high in fat. Um, fat is actually works as a precursor to cholesterol. So right. not a great idea either. Uh, it helps 
or if oil can we've talked about oil i think several times on the show perhaps already uh oil in, increases inflammation in your body so you know the question of what does it mean to actually eat better is is perhaps somewhat elusive right. for people right so to really stop and and talk to them about it one, it takes time, but but two, it's really beneficial for the person. So right. we try to do it here as, as much as we possibly can. So it seems to me then that one could say that the statin is kind of just treating a symptom, whereas the diet would be treating the root cause because with that, not just the cholesterol is going to come down. I mean, you're lowering your risk of diabetes, yeah, yeah. you're lowering your risk of heart disease, like right. so many right. things, lowering your risk of cancer. Right. So therefore, it's it's a root cause. Yeah, you're you're in effect changing a number. Correct. You know, it does it does have some benefit. It, you you will likely live longer with it than without it, without making any other changes. So mm-hmm. keeping everything else constant, you'll do better taking it than you would not taking it. Right. There are some side effects to them, so they're not totally harmless. Um, most most people do well with them. Most patients I see who are taking them are not experiencing at least significant side effects. Mm. But yeah, if you can if you can make those changes through diet, there's there's no real side effects through diet. Right. You know, right. if you're eating better, you're going to feel better. You're not going to have, you know, I don't know, muscle aches or anything right, like right. that. I know that when people adjust uh, to the plant-based diet, if they're on blood pressure medication, mm-hmm. that's something that's really closely monitored because yep. if your blood pressure is coming down naturally and you're also taking blood pressure medication, I mean, you're kind of going to feel funny. You're going to be in a hard way. Yeah. Is it similar then with the statins? Do you run a risk of like kind of bottoming out there as well? Uh, no, that, that's a good point you bring up, though. There, there's not – in the studies that they've done on, on different cholesterol medications, there hasn't really been shown to be a number that's too low for the cholesterol mm. um, because your body makes its own cholesterol. Now, you are inhibiting one of the enzymes that helps make the cholesterol, but that mainly works in the liver. And like I had said really early on in the show, I think that your individual cells can actually make their own cholesterol. Gotcha. So you can't, uh, in, uh, as far as I've as far as I've read, and as far as I'm, my understanding is, there's no number of cholesterol that's too low. And in some of the newer ones, they got they got the cholesterol numbers down to even close to zero. I mean, where your the amount of cholesterol in your blood is is essentially zero, or like like ten or something like that. Wow. You wow. know, and people did fine. There was no discernible adverse effects from that. Very interesting. Yeah, kind of neat, right? So it your is. cells are are prepared for that. You know, not in a not in evol- not in an evolutionary sense. You know, because yeah. we didn't have those medications. Yeah, for, right. right. <laughs> you know, Cro-Magnon man did not have statins. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's not the statins that get them that low. It's right. Other, it's there's uh, a couple other medications. Sure, sure, sure. So, uh, yeah. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Eat your fiber. Exactly. Eat your fruits. Eat your vegetables. Exactly. Your grains and legumes. Exactly. It's a fun word to say. Yeah. Legumes. Legumes. Yeah. Or, or legumes. Legumes. So I go back and forth sometimes. Leggings. Leggings. Uh, mm, don't nah, eat those. Yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. The chole- so what, last thing here, just real quick. Yeah. The cholesterol is recycled through your GI system, and so if you can grab something, or if something can grab onto it and get it out, you're, you're going to absorb less of it back into your body, and that should help lower the cholesterol a little bit as well. Fascinating. All right. So your prescription, plant-based diet? You got it. Healthy lifestyle? You got it. Cool. It, like works. it. it uh, works. Man, that's like cholesterol 101. Matter of fact, that's more than 101. I feel like we went up to like 302, <laughs> 305. Yeah, this, was, uh, this was kind of a heavy talk today. This this was the advanced course. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely smarter. Like I, I honestly did not realize that cholesterol is getting you know kind of a bum rap. It's yeah. just a matter of you know how much are you you're taking right. in. Look at that. You got a dinner topic for tonight. I do. I'm going to go home. Me and the wife. Jules. <laughs> we're talking go. cholesterol. There you go.
Since we've been doing this podcast and now the exam room live as well, we've heard so many stories from people whose cholesterol has been sky high, but then retreated to normal levels after they made adjustments to their diet. And for a lot of them, that also meant getting off of medications like statins. I remember one story in particular, this person sharing that their doctor had become concerned that their cholesterol had dropped so dramatically after they switched to a plant-based diet. Now, at the time, this person was still taking statins. And so the doctor tells them, they said, hey, you need to start eating meat again so you can keep taking these statins. Now, that was a bit of a head scratcher, right? Think about that for a second. You need to eat the very thing that was causing you to have high cholesterol in the first place so that we can keep giving you medication to treat it. Now, don't get me wrong. Medicine absolutely has its place. Medicine can be a wonderful thing. But why treat a problem that doesn't have to be a problem? That was a big-time teachable moment. And hopefully... That doctor now has taken some time to learn a little bit more about nutrition. And as we've discussed previously on the show, it's not really the fault of the doctor that this happened because they're not taught hardly anything about diet and nutrition in medical school. So how could they know? That's why we do things like the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine every year here at the Physicians Committee so that doctors and dietitians, practitioners, they can further their education and be better equipped to help their patients and prevent disease in the first place rather than just treat it after the fact. And that's also why I love the fact that you are here listening to the exam room right now so that you can be armed with this information that you need to stay healthy and hopefully not have to deal with any of these chronic diet-related diseases that really put a damper on your quality of life and even shave years off of it. If you ever have a question for one of our experts on the show, go ahead and drop me a line. Find me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. Send me your question. And I'll do my best to get you an answer on an upcoming show. And if you would like some help getting your heart healthy, or maybe you have high cholesterol, you can make an appointment with the Barnard Medical Center. The team of plant-based doctors and dietitians are there to help. Telemedicine appointments are available for those who don't live in the Washington, D.C. area. So you can call 202-527-7500 to schedule an appointment today, or you can visit barnardmedical.org. Now here's some cool news. If you live in Texas, that includes you. The Lone Star State is the latest to join those where telemedicine appointments are available. So call 202-527-7500 or visit barnardmedical.org for a full list of states or to schedule an appointment. 
I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Kim Williams for joining us. Always good. Always, always, always good also to revisit a conversation to my healthy partner in healthy crime, Dr. Steve Niebuhr. (laughs) And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>